You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, listen to this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. I want to pause there for a second, put a little context on this. First of all, that first part, Jesus left the temple, was going away. You need to understand what was just happening. If you were here this past Sunday, uh, Dr. Jeff, our pastor here, taught on Matthew chapter 23. And so you kind of are familiar with what Matthew 23 talks about. It's some serious stuff. Uh, Jesus was in the temple uh, talking and, and, and really like, it's one of those sermons that just kind of hits you in the face, you know, kicks you in the spiritual gut. And, uh, and, and I feel like when it says Jesus left the temple, because he, he, was, he was calling the people out on hypocrisy calling them out on all this, uh, the way they focus on all the surface level stuff. Uh, you read the very last part of what he says in, in chapter 23, verse 30, 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. In other words, he's saying, you kill the people who God sent to you. And he knew what, is, what was about to happen to him. He said, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens gathered her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the very next verse, chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple, was going away. I feel like this is an ultimate mic drop moment, you know? Gets up out of his seat, drops the mic, and walks on out of there, kicks the doors on his way. And listen to what happens. So it says Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Like, that's weird. I mean, just... Not looking at what happens next, thinking about what that just said. It sound, I mean, I have this picture. Jesus is all like, you know, fired up from preaching this passionate message that was heavy on his heart to these dudes that were not following him and rejecting God. And he, he comes busting out of the temple and he's walking away. And I picture his disciples come running up behind him saying, wait, Jesus, wait, turn around. Look at how awesome this building is. And look at what Jesus says. He says, you see all these do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, this really isn't leading into what we're talking about tonight, but it does kind of give some context to what we're talking about tonight, uh, which is why I want to just hang here for a second. I, I think this is, I just want to know what Jesus was thinking and feeling in this moment. Like, he had to have been so annoyed. He had to have been so frustrated. Think about the disciples. Who were these guys? These guys, this was... This, I mean, at this point, they had been with Jesus for like three years. They had been in an intimate, like super tight relationship with Christ. I mean, essentially, they were mature followers of Jesus. And yet in this moment, after Jesus has just got done in the temple preaching on how hypocritical we can be sometimes and how we can pay way too much attention to the surface level things that really don't matter in the end, they come running up and, and they say, Jesus, aren't you impressed with this temple building? Like he had to have been so annoyed. He had to have been so frustrated. I have this note in my Bible. Um, I don't know when I put this in here, but I, just in the margin it said, the building means nothing, but the body means everything. The building means nothing, but the body of Christ means everything. And I just want to say this, I think so, so often we get so like amped up and caught up and focused on and, and obsessed with the appearance of the worship setting that we miss the fact that God may not even be there at all. 
And, and also, I, I'm, I'm also convicted by the fact that I think, I think we get so caught up on the surface level things. And I feel like we're so much like the disciples sometimes. And we're like, Jesus, Jesus, check this out. Check this out. Check out how, how you know, awesome. No offense, Hunter. I just honored you guys for setting all this up. Look how awesome the stage is and how cool it looks and, it looks and everything. And, and, oh, man, Jesus, check out this picture, this Instagram photo of how perfect looking my quiet time was this morning. Look at that, Jesus. Or, or you know, just we pay attention to these stupid surface level things and we think that he's impressed with that. And I feel like he's got to be so annoyed with us sometimes saying, dude, you're pursuing the wrong thing. You're going after the wrong thing. And, and I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying. I don't know if I'm saying it the right way it needs to be said. But I'm so convicted by this and I feel like I need to share that. And I also want to say, notice these guys were close followers of Jesus. And I know some of you in here, like you're pretty mature in your faith but you need to understand that doesn't, that doesn't um, mean that you can't be one that falls into this as well. Anyways, we got to go move on. So verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, what does it say? Then what? What? Then the end will come. If you fast forward to verse 29, because it kind of gives us a little, not side note, but kind of goes back and describes more of what that time will look like leading up to the end. Then verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other now, I will say this, just as a side note, this text right here is one of the main reasons that, as we talked about last week, I don't really believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, because you look here, and when does Jesus come back to get his people? It's after the tribulation. Now, again, that's not the core of this text, but it does kind of show you a little bit more of layout, according to Jesus, how this is all going to take place. I want to go back and show you this. Go back to verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, I'm not a huge fan of chilies. I'm sorry, whoever said that. Uh, Jay Wood and Wag, where'd they go? Where are y'all sitting at, Jay Wood and Wag? Oh, you're changing up on me. Jay Wood and Wag, they love chilies. Like, 
He said amen. That's the only thing you've ever said amen to when I've been preaching, man. <laughs> Need to find some new worship leaders. Um, they love Chili's. And, uh, I mean, I, I used to, you know, we'd be hanging out, be like, hey, where y'all want to go eat? And they'd be like, Chili's. And I'd, so we'd go to Chili's because I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm just going to go. I'm, you know, I'm, what's the word there? I'll, I'll compromise. I'm a compromising type of person. And uh, did you hear that, Leslie? I compromise a lot. Um, I'm getting married. I don't know if y'all know that. Leslie and I are. Um, but they started going, we, we'd go, like, literally, the only time, you know, I ever went to Chili's was with Jay Wood and Wax. I stopped asking them where they wanted to eat because I know they would say Chili's. Um, but last year, January, I think it was January, um, we were down in Harlingen, Texas. Does anybody know where that is? Yeah, like it's, anybody, have you been there? You had to have a good reason to go there, I guess. I don't know. It's far south. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just like it's so far away. Anyways, Harlingen, it's south, south, south Texas. Um, we were down there. I was, I was preaching. They were leading worship at this youth event. It really was a cool place to go. Um, and uh, after one of the event, or after one of the worship nights, we uh, were like, "Hey, let's go eat." And and I was, I made the mistake where y'all want to go eat, and they're like, "Chili's." And so uh, we go to Chili's, and uh, I ordered the quesadilla explosion. Anybody had that? Yeah, it's delicious. It's a salad. I mean, it looks like a quesadilla actually exploded in a bowl and then threw some lettuce in there, and mixed it all together. And it's actually pretty good. So I had the quesadilla explosion. I was like, man, this is pretty good. I, I like chilies again. Plus, they changed their chips and salsa. Uh, and so now it's good. But anyways, so two weeks later, I was preaching in uh, Round Rock at another youth event. And uh, after one of the nights, um, the people I was with, they're like, hey, where do y'all want to go eat? And I, I jumped in and I was like, let's go to Chili's. And I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> um, I was thinking quesadilla explosion. So I, we went to Chili's, had the quesadilla explosion again. And uh, I don't know why I'm emphasizing quesadilla explosion. It has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. Um, anyway, so it, what's Chili's? It was great. Great experience. So then, like two weeks later, I'm in Dallas, uh, or Carrollton. I went and had lunch, or dinner with my sister. She lives in Carrollton. And, uh, and she was like, where do you want to go eat? And I was like, let's go to Chili's. And so we go to Chili's again. I get the quesadilla explosion again. We're sitting there eating, though. And uh, my sister at this point, she had just gotten a new job. She had just finished nursing school. How many nursing students we got in here? Oh, yeah. Um, so we just fin- she had just finished nursing school, and she got a, her first, like, actual <coughs> excuse me, nursing job at uh, some hospital in Arlington. She's, a, she's an L&D nurse, labor and delivery, um, which every time I say that, girls are like, oh, my gosh, that's like the dream job. Get to play with babies all day long, which I want to be like, dude, do you understand how disgusting that job is? Like, the babies are covered in slime. There's, like, a wire connected to their belly button. Uh, it's not what you think it is. But anyway, so she starts, like, telling, you know, she, I was like, I asked her, I was like, you know, how, how's your new job? And, and so she's like, man, it's good, it's good. And, and so, like, I'm trying to be polite, act like I'm interested in her job, but I'm really, labor and delivery just doesn't interest me very much. So I'm, I'm just trying to make conversation. I'm like, so tell me, like, what do you actually do as an L&D nurse? Like, I don't know, just say something, whatever. I'm listening, not really, but I'm listening. And uh, she starts to tell me, like, I had no idea, like I had no clue how hands-on uh, and in-depth her job is, like she gets to know her patients well, I'll just say that, and uh, it's disgusting, and she starts telling me this stuff while I'm trying to eat this quesadilla explosion, and uh, I'm thinking, well, crud, I just started liking chilies again, uh, I, don't, I don't go to chilies anymore, um, but uh, I was getting embarrassed too, because she's like telling me all this stuff, and like we're in public, and we're in like the, 
you know, we're surrounded by all these tables, and there's a lot of people, and she talks loud, and so I'm like, kind of like putting my head down, like, dude, you know, say it a little quieter, like you're grossing me out, you got to be grossing them out, I'm embarrassed that you're saying this stuff in public, and uh, she just starts explaining everything, and it's, it's crazy, like, I mean, I, I will say this, bottom line, I couldn't do what my sister does, um, one, because it's, it's gross, two, I'd be terrified I'd break it like the baby, um, <laughs> But I remember, you know, walking away from that thinking, and not like I'd never heard about some of this stuff before, but like, you know, the birthing process is crazy. Like, the stuff that happens, the stuff that happens leading up to it, like, it's crazy. And, uh, I mean, if, you, if you've ever, like, I know, you know, I, I would guess most of y'all in here haven't had babies or whatever, but like, um, if you've ever, you know, maybe you had a younger, you know, sibling, I didn't, so uh, maybe you, you've seen that or experienced that or whatever, but it's crazy. And like... You can tell when somebody's pregnant, right? Like, you can really tell when somebody's, like, act, like they are so, they're really pregnant. Like, they're about to go into uh, to, to labor. You know, like, it's, it's any moment, you know. I got this picture. Um, can y'all throw the picture up there? So, <clears throat> that's my mom. She's going to be so mad at this. That's my mom. Uh, and that's April 1984. And if you look real close, you can kind of see me in there. Uh, I'm that, like, welt in the middle um, it looks like she's walking around with about a 12-pound medicine ball underneath her dress. Uh, literally almost was. I was 11.8 pounds when I was born. Um, I don't know why people gasped at that. Uh, anyways, um, I was a big baby. What's the big deal? But yeah, so she was really, she was really pregnant uh, there. But you can tell when somebody's like close to going. That was like... I was already overdue at that point. Uh, I was supposed to have already been out of there, and I wasn't. Um, but you can tell, like, when somebody's really pregnant. She looked really pregnant. My mom's going to kill me for saying that. But she looked really, really pregnant. It's kind of like you can tell when a storm's coming, you know? Like, you can look up. I'm serious. I'm going somewhere with this. You can look up, and you can see, like, the dark clouds rolling in, right? I'm not saying this is dark, you know, and bad, but... You can smell, like, when, when the rain's coming, you can smell the change in the air. You can smell the rain. You can hear the thunder off in the distance. You can tell when somebody's about to go into labor. Look at this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. It says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, what are these things he's referring to right there? Yeah, the stuff that he just referenced uh, prior to that, which we'll go back and look at in a second. When you see all these things, you know that he's near at the very gates. Where it says summer is near, it means it's almost time for harvest. You put that picture up of my mom again, like, I think it was a little bit past harvest there. But um, I guess I didn't get the memos time to come out. But um, you can tell when somebody's about to go into labor. It's like if you've ever gotten sick before, stomach virus or food poisoning. Like you can tell before, like the KCD explosion happens. Like you can tell something's up, right? A couple of years ago, I was teaching at the UNTBSM. Anybody here go to Crave on Thursday nights? Yeah, I was teaching at the UNTBSM, and uh, about an hour before, my stomach just got like you know bubble gut, and uh, it wasn't good, and it was hurting, and so. Um, I think it starts around, does y'all start at 7? I can't remember. Yeah, you'll start at 7. 
And about 6.30, I told Stephanie, the BSM director, I was like, look, I'm, I don't know what's up. My stomach's not feeling good, but I, I still, I've, I'm I prepared for tonight. Like, I want to teach. So um, I told her, I was like, I'm just going to stand outside until it's, like, my turn to teach. And so it's, like, 7 o'clock. They start worshiping and everything. And I stayed out there until, like, 7.20 when it was time for me to walk in and teach. And I walked in, grabbed the mic, and I taught. And it was, it was bad. Like, I was struggling. You know, a couple times I'd, like, move the mic and burp. Uh, I just wasn't feeling good. And I'd, gone, I'd taken my interns that year to uh, Southwestern Seminary down in Fort Worth earlier that day to, to kind of do a seminary tour. They were thinking about going to seminary. We ate in their cafeteria. I knew I shouldn't have had the Chinese food part of the cafeteria, but I got really sick off of it. Anyways, uh, so I finished preaching. I prayed, quickest prayer of my life. Put the mic down, left, didn't say anything to anybody. Got my car, drove to my apartment, which is about 10 minutes from there. And I'm not kidding. Like, I was putting the key in the lock when it was like, all right, it's time, you know? Um, and uh, I had just enough time to get into my restroom, and it was the next 24 hours were terrible. But uh, the, the, the point is this. Listen, the point is this. How long are we going to ignore the birth pains? Like, how, how long are we going to ignore the signs Matthew 24, 8. Listen to what it says again. It says, all these, referring to the things he just said, are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, notice it says these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says that as if almost to imply, look, when you start to see these things happen, you need to know that's just the beginning of the birth pains. There's more to come. And though that's true, that when we see these things start to happen, that's just the beginning of the birth pains. There's more to come. If you know much, which... I don't, so I probably shouldn't speak at this, but, like, if you know much about, like, birth pains and giving birth and all that stuff, pregnancy, like, you know that when the birth pain, like, when the, when the, uh, when the contractions come, like, it's, it's getting close to time to go to the hospital. I mean, it, it, at one point, like, when the contractions start to come at a certain rate, like, it is time to go to the hospital. And some people, they make it to the hospital, they get there, they spend a few hours in labor, multiple hours in labor. Other people, though, they don't make it to the hospital. Because once the birth pains start, like, I mean, it, it could be a long time before the baby comes. It could, the baby could be coming right away. Um, I, had, I, had a, I had a friend. I have a friend. She's a, she's a midwife. You know what a midwife is? Cool. I, I don't really know what it is. It's something like in there, labor and delivery nurse-ish. But uh, so she works at this clinic. And uh, she told me this story of, so this, uh, this, they had this couple they've been working with. And the, and the dad, like, one night calls and says, the baby's coming. We're in the car. We're on the way. Get ready. And, uh, and so they're like driving and they pull up, car speeds in, and this girl, the midwife, runs up to the, to the door to open the door for the woman. Woman is sitting there, she's wearing a dress, she's holding the baby in her arms, umbilical cord is still intact, and uh, the husband, she said, was just sitting there like knuckle grip <laughs> on the steering wheel, eyes wide open like in shock, what just happened, you know, not moving. And the woman just gets out and carries her baby on into the clinic. True story. Uh, like, some people make it to the hospital. Baby, you know, they go into delivery, whatever. Some people don't make it to the hospital. The point is this. Once the birth pains start, the baby could come at any moment. And listen to what Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 24, fast forward to verse 40, 42. It says, therefore, after he explains all this, therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. Listen, this is the question of the night. If, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would that change your plans for today? 
Let me say that again. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would that change your plans for today? I mean, listen again to what the birth pains that he lists here will be. Matthew 24 says, verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So false teachers, false prophets. (coughs) Verse 6, he says, And you will hear wars, or hear of wars, rumors of wars. I mean, come on. Does this sound, I mean, do you watch the news? See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end isn't yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes in various places. Now, why are we looking at Matthew 24 when when we're studying Revelation? We're looking at it because essentially Matthew 24 summarizes Revelation chapter 6 through 19. More specifically, Matthew 24, it summarizes the seven seals. Do you remember last week? Last week, chapter 5, we see all of a sudden there's this, uh, there's this scroll. And the Lamb comes to open the scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And that's where we pick up tonight. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, turn there. It says this, now I watched, John's talking now, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Let me pause here for a second. So he says, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Uh, one commentator on this, he said, sealing a scroll, he's talking about scrolls back then. Sealing a scroll was a common and important practice in biblical times. The wills of both Emperor Ves- uh, Vespasian and Caesar Augustus, for example, were, secu- were secured with seven seals. A lot of times these scrolls that were sealed with seven seals, they were either will and testaments or they were like title deeds. For such a document, a scribe would procure a long roll of parchment and begin writing. After a period of writing, he would stop, roll the parchment enough to cover his words, and seal the scroll at the point with wax. Then he would resume writing, stop again, roll the scroll, and add another seal. By the time he was finished, he would have sealed the scroll seven times. And the scroll would be read a section at a time after each seal was opened. So that's what we're looking at here. The the Lamb, Jesus, he's got this scroll. He's opening this scroll. You also need to see this. It says, verse, verse 1, now I watched when the lamb opened. That detail, when the lamb opened, is, is a significant detail. Don't overlook that. It's, this, is a, this is a huge uh, a huge detail. Jesus, essentially, he's the lamb. He's the one opening this. He's the one reading this. He's the one who's totally in control of all the stuff that's about to happen. Which, if you've read, read forward, which I would encourage you to do that every week, like that should do two things for you. Knowing that Jesus is in control of what's about to happen. One, it should comfort you. And two, it should convict you. It should comfort you if you are one who is truly in Christ. It should comfort you to know that Jesus, your Savior, is in complete control of what's about to happen. I mean, if you go back and look at some of what he said in the letters to the churches, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus said, Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, a lot of people, they, this is where they get their pre-tribulation rapture theory from. They think that him saying, I will keep you from the hour of trial, is to say, I will completely remove, remove your presence from that hour of trial. Like, you won't even be there. But honestly, I don't think the text really implies that. I think really what it's saying, especially when you read more of what's in Revelation and like Matthew 24, what you actually see is, he's not saying, I will physically keep you from the hour of trial. What he's saying is, though you are going to go through tribulation, though you might go through persecution here coming up, like, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to sustain you through that. Not only physically and emotionally will I sustain you through that, but spiritually, you will not be under my wrath that I'm unleashing on the earth at that point. We should be comforted to know that Jesus is in total control of what we're about to read next. But you should also be convicted by that. You should be convicted by the fact that he's in control, especially considering, uh, or, or especially if you are, or, are, are somebody in this room who takes him for granted, takes Jesus for granted, or, or assumes that you know Jesus, or sees Jesus as this super laid back, super chill, hipster sort of friend of yours, who's like just cool with you being you, like you do you boo, I'll do me. Like if you think that's who Jesus is, you should be convicted by this because the reality is Jesus will come back to judge the earth. And those who, are, uh, those who are his, he'll keep. And he's going to judge everybody else. So it says, verse 1, chapter 6, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard... Uh, the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. (coughs) This is the very popular text that describes to us the four horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I want to take a second, I want to look briefly at each. You look at verse 2. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out and conquered, uh, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Some people, because this is a white horse, think that this is Jesus. If you go to Revelation chapter 19, you see Jesus shows up on a white horse. Um, But I don't think this is Jesus. A lot of people also don't think this is Jesus because there's some. Uh, differences between this rider and the rider in Revelation 19. First of all, the biggest difference is Jesus is the one opening these seals right now. He's not the one riding the horse. He's the one opening the scroll with the seal. So he's, he's standing there opening this first seal, and then this white horse with a rider on it comes out. He, he's not the one riding the horse. Second thing, this is the biggest difference is, you'll notice this rider on this horse has a bow, like a bow and arrow. Um, but you'll notice Revelation 19 and other places where Jesus is described, he doesn't carry a bow, he carries what? A sword, double-edged sword, talking about God's word, doesn't wield a dull edge. When God's word is presented, it always cuts deep. So I, I don't think this is Jesus. Instead, uh, I think this is what a lot of people would call the Antichrist, somebody who's going to come and probably claim to be Christ or, or claim to be somebody like Christ, um, and he's essentially going to bring false peace and security on the earth. He's going to bring false comfort to the earth. Um, if you go back to Matthew 24, 25, verse 4 through 5, what you see in here, these first, uh, like verses 4 through 7, they parallel these four horsemen. So verses 4 and 5, it talks about how there's going to be the people who come claiming to be the Christ, false teachers, false prophets. 
bringing false peace. That's this first horse Jesus mentions in Matthew 24. So the white horse symbolizes peace. Then you get to verse 3. It says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, a bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Which just pause there for a second. The fact that this rider was permitted to do this is important. It's a reminder to us again that God is in complete control of all this. These four horsemen are operating only under the permission of God. But it says its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So the red horse symbolizes war and bloodshed. Now again, if you were going to go to Matthew chapter 24, in verses 6 and 7, what does it say? It says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then it says, verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. So following this period of deceptive peace, there's going to be a period of war and bloodshed. This red horse symbolizes war and bloodshed. Then, verse 5, the third horse. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius. And do not harm the oil or the wine. So after the false peace, there's going to be war and bloodshed. And after the war and bloodshed, there'll be famine or economic hardship. It's just kind of the natural thing that follows war and bloodshed. You look at war-torn areas, what happens to those economies afterwards? They, they, they crumble. And so they go through a period of famine. They go through a, parent, a period of economic hardship. So the black horse symbolizes famine. Again, Matthew 24, verse 7, after it says nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, it says there will be what? Starts with an F, ends in Ammon. There's going to be a famine. And you see there it says people were paying a denarius for a quart of wheat. A quart of wheat, um, historians say that people would eat about a quart of wheat a day. It's like two pounds of wheat. They would eat about a quart of wheat, like one person would eat like a quart of wheat a day. So a day's meal cost a denarius. And a denarius was what a person would earn about on average per day. So like a day's wages is what they had to pay for just like a meal. So in other words, like economic hardship, there's famine, economic hardship, um, resources are low. So people are like, there's this massive inflation in prices, uh, unreasonable inflation in prices. People are having to pay way too much for just food, not having any money left over to live on. Um, it, 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 as I was studying this, it reminded me of um, a couple years ago, I went to England. Uh, there's a pastor out in England who, I think I've shared some of this with you before, who has kind of mentored me a little bit, and, and he, uh, he and his wife asked me to go out there and visit them and kind of shadow him for, uh, to a couple of conferences that he was teaching and spend some time with him. And, and um, one of the things that he taught at while we were there was, it was kind of a weird event, but it was this, um, kind of this, it was this World War II banquet for survivors of World War II. It was really kind of cool to go to. It was like me and a bunch of old people. And, uh, it, you know, it was, it was interesting. So you go in, it's decorated, all this World War II paraphernalia and, and all these really cool old artifacts, you know, from the war and stuff. And, and we're sitting around this table, and it's so cool, like, hearing, talking to these people who had gone through the war. You know, we, we read about World War, World war II from an American perspective in our history books. But to hear them talk about World War II, people who, I mean, the war took place on their soil, like, in, in many ways, it's centered around, like, that area of the world. Like, it was really crazy to hear their perspective on it. And you would think at a banquet like this, they would have, like, really nice food catered in, but they didn't. Instead, um, they ate what they ate for rations, 
while they were in the war. So they bring out the food. I'm hungry. I'm thinking we're going to eat some good food. There's a banquet. All the other banquets and conferences we've been to was like good food. And they bring out like these small pieces of, of really, I don't know, it was like essentially it was like rationed bread. And they had this, I want to say it was like this lard that you spread on top of it that gave it a little bit of flavor, but it was really just kind of gross and disgusting. Um, so I didn't really didn't eat anything. But these people were eating it like crazy and loving it. And it was so fun to watch them eat it because, uh, seriously, these old ladies were sitting there just, you know, a big smile on their face, eating and, and just dancing to the music because they were playing, like, music and stuff. And, and, and I'd ask, like, why are you so happy right now? And they kind of just talked about the memories this was bringing back of their husbands who were killed in the war or family members who were killed. And it was just so cool to see. But I thought of this because the food they had to eat was, like, cruddy. And they had to ration it. They, they had these booklets out that showed how they had to ration their food like the government made them ration their food. And it made me think of this. So the white horse is going to come and bring this false peace and security. Then the red horse is going to come bringing war and bloodshed. The black horse is going to come bringing famine and economic hardship. Then, verse 7, you get to the, the pale horse, the fourth seal. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. That word, Pale there in Greek is the word chloros. It's where you get the word chlorine or chlorophyll. It's actually used to describe the color green or a greenish color. It's like a pale green, like the color of a dead body when it's decomposing. That's what color this horse is. So this horse symbolizes death. So it says, verse 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. You know, again, if you compare this to Matthew 24, verse 7, after it says there will be famine, it says there will be earthquakes, massive amounts of death caused by different things, pestilence, just death everywhere. Uh, 2010, you remember the earthquake in Haiti? Uh, I had some friends who went over there, like, just right after it happened, they, you know, are in the medical field, and they said they landed at the airport. As soon as they opened the plane uh, door, like, this, just the smell of death. And they said it was just so strong, this stench of dead bodies. Because I don't know if you remember watching the news, but they just showed piles and piles of dead bodies, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people just out there rotting. And that's what I picture when I, when I read this. Because of the war and the famine and all the bloodshed, like there's just going to be death everywhere. And you notice it, it says a, they'll have power over a, to, to kill a fourth of the earth. Like right now, our, our current population is about 7 billion. That's like 1.75 billion people dead. And you see there too, it says they'll kill them with the sword, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. There's different views on what the wild beasts mean there. Like is it symbolic? Some people think it's symbolic. Some people think it's like actual animals and stuff. You know, because of the famine, they're going to come attack humans. Um, some people think, and I thought this was interesting, some people think that it refers to pandemic plagues that come from animals kind of like Ebola or um, swine flu or bird flu or AIDS or the, the Zika virus that's in the news right now or kind of like the bubonic plague was coming from rats and stuff. Like some people think it'll be something like that um, that will kind of be that fourth horse. Now kind of wrapping this up, um, th- there's, there's four basic approaches to interpreting Revelation. Um, there's, there's this one pro- approach called the preterist approach. And basically, the, that, that approach says that most of Revelation depicts events that took place like during the time of the early church. So like some people, when they read Revelation, they see it as the, this is describing stuff that happened years ago, like 2,000 years ago or 1,000 plus years ago. 
Um, things like the fall of Jerusalem um, under the power of Rome. Uh, and, and so like when we get to chapter 13, the beast, they would say that's not a dictator that's going to reign in the future. They would say that that was a dictator that reigned back then, like one of the Roman emperors, like Nero, who was very oppressive towards Christians. So that's one way to read and interpret Revelation. Another way is the historicist view. Um, that view basically sees like the, the entire church age is being described by Revelation now. So like Revelation and some of the things that we're reading about now are things that have, are kind of happening all throughout the history of the church. So some of this we're going through right now. Some of this, some of it we've already been through. Um, then there's the, the idealist way. It's kind of pegged the idealist way to, to view Revelation. And it's more of a spir- spiritual view, like, like all this stuff is spiritual warfare that's going to take place that really won't, we won't see at a physical level. And then there's the futurist view of interpreting Revelation. This is what you're probably most familiar with. And it's the view that sees everything in Revelation as future events that are going to take place one day. Um, I, I, one of the problems that we fall into when we're studying Revelation, I think this is one of the ways that reasons that we, that we avoid Revelation, is we get so caught up in trying to figure out when all this is going to happen or when all this did happen and how it's going to happen and what order it's going to happen in. And when we do that, we miss the most important thing. We miss out on asking the question, the most important question, what did the people to whom this, this revelation was originally written and given to, like the original readers, the original audience, what sort of emotion and feeling and response did they have to reading this? Like those seven churches that we see in Revelation 2 and 3? Like what was their response to reading this? That's the most important thing. I mean, think about this. 2,000 years ago, these churches that hopefully you read about when they read this stuff, how did they respond? Like the church that was being persecuted, like they were all being persecuted, but the ones that were being persecuted, like if they were being persecuted heavily and they read this stuff, what do you think their response was? How do you think that made them feel? I mean, one, they're going to be told, look, there's more coming. So they, they probably, you know, girded up, got ready. But two, they were, they were hearing things like Revelation 3.10, look, I'm going to protect you from that. I'm going to help you endure through that. You're not going to sit under my wrath. So they had to have been encouraged to endure, knowing that Jesus was going to come back and make everything better. But also consider like the church at Laodicea. They were the ones who were called lukewarm. And Jesus gave them a big warning. What do you think their response was to reading this? Well, shoot. Like this is a wake-up call. A challenge to wake up. A challenge to not be lukewarm. A challenge to fear God and run from sin. This is the most important question we need to ask. And, and here's essentially what this all draws back to for me. If you watch the news at all, and you read things like what Matthew 24, 4-7 through says, where it talks about wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, all this stuff, and you're seeing what's happening around the world, you have to wonder, at least, could we be experiencing those birth pains now? Like I was thinking about this the other day. What about the Christians right now in Syria and Iraq? I mean, most of them don't have probably even access to the news of what's going on in the rest of the world. And all they see and experience day in and day out is intense, heavy persecution. What do you think? Those who've read Revelation and are living in Syria and Iraq right now, what do you think they think is going on? I mean, I guarantee you some of them right now think, oh my gosh, these are the birth pains. We're experiencing this junk. And if that's true, 
that we're going through the birth pains now, we've got to understand that the birthing process can, can be really fast or it can be really slow. We don't know how long this stuff will last. And many are hesitant to suggest that we're living in the end times. But why should we hesitate to suggest that we are? Like people say, oh man, you think we're living in the end times, you're crazy. People are hesitant, people are hesitant to say that. And, and I want to give you four reasons we should not hesitate to say that we're potentially living in the end times right now. Four reasons. Number one is this. Some of the very things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 and that are prophesied in Revelation 6, some of those things are happening right now. Like they may not be the actual things that are being prophesied about, but things exactly like the things that are being prophesied about are happening right now around the world. Nation rising against nation, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Second, so, so some of those things that are prophesied, they're happening right now. That's one reason we shouldn't hesitate. Two, Paul never hesitated to suggest that we're living in the end times. And that was 2,000 years ago. Paul, who wrote almost all the letters in the New Testament, Romans through, some say Hebrews, like he never hesitated to suggest that we're living in the end times 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, he's actually talking about marriage. Y'all know I'm getting married soon? I'm getting married. He's talking about marriage, and he says, he says this. He says, we should live like we're not, if you're married, don't live like you're married. Leslie, like when we get married, he, said, he challenges us. We should, we should live like we're not married. Not in a, not in a like, uh, unfaithful to your spouse sort of way, but in a way of like, not becoming so fixated on your marriage that you miss the mission. And he says, the time is near. The time now is short. And let me just tell you, in the context of marriage, oh my gosh, look at our culture, especially the Christian culture. Even the Christian culture worships the idea of the perfect, happy marriage. And, and that's not the purpose of marriage. I mean, you go back, we studied this in the Bare Naked series two years ago. The purpose of marriage, the purpose of any relationship that God gives to us is to help us carry out and complete his mission. And Paul says, stop living with this world. Focus on this marriage. Live like tomorrow is the day that he's coming back. you got work to do. Romans 13, 11, he says, wake up from your slumber. For the time is near. Our salvation is near now than when we first believed. Paul never hesitated to suggest that, that we were living in the end times. Also, consider how the early church would have responded to these letters. I mean, in Nero's reign... Oppressive Roman ruler. Did they just sigh and be like, man, this stinks that this is going on, but this isn't the end? No, they lived like it was the end. I mean, you read 1 Thessalonians. They, they were ready for Jesus to come back that day. So the early church and Paul never hesitated to suggest that we we're living in the end times. That's the second reason we shouldn't hesitate. Third reason is this. Is it better to live like the end is near with urgency? Or is it better to live like it's not even close with passivity? Think about that again. Is it better for us to live like the end is near, like Jesus is coming back tomorrow, so live with urgency, or is it better to live like the end is way far off in the distance and live with passivity? You look at Scripture. Jesus never told us to live passive lives. If we're going to err, we should err towards urgency and the assumption that the end is now. That's the third reason we shouldn't hesitate to suggests that we're living in the end times. Fourth reason is this. Who stinking cares if people call you crazy? The reality is, if, you're, if you and I are really following Jesus, they're going to think we're crazy anyways. 
Now here's what the problem is. Most of us, we're trying to do the one foot in, one foot out thing. Because we don't want people to think we're crazy. So the thought of people thinking you're crazy over something like this terrifies the junk out of you because you haven't gotten over the thought of people thinking you're crazy because you're just following Jesus in the first place. People thought Noah was crazy. And literally, he was saying, look, y'all better get ready because the end of this world is coming. That's why I'm building this massive boat. And they were like, dude, you're crazy. And as we studied in the survey Old Testament course I teach on Sunday mornings last week or whenever it was, he was, was he 600 or 800? Those were in the course. Was he 600 or 800 when the flood came? He was 600 years old. I, I, I doubt God came to him year 599 and said, hey, build a boat. It was probably more like year 100 or 200 or 300. That meant for like 200 years this dude is standing there being told he's crazy for saying that the time is coming soon. And you know what? He ended up being right. People said Jesus was crazy. So I'll just be honest with you. I don't think we should hesitate in saying that we're living in the end times. And again, Matthew 24, 42 through 44, he says, look, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, that would change everything for you. And so that's the question I want to ask you. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, which he could, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would that change your plans for today? I pray to God that you would think about that. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would that change your plans for today? Dang, that's convicting. If that's not convicting, you've got a callous heart and mind. And you need to pray that God would open that up. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.